As was noted earlier this evening, certainly already, what a blessing it has been to appreciate the grandeur of God's handiwork about us this day. It is the first day of the week that also we've had the, all the great privileges as well to assemble in His name, to offer worship to the great and only God that there is. And certainly this evening as we're given again that precious privilege, we're so thankful for the presence of each and every one. But most importantly, as Gary mentioned earlier, the opportunity that's ours to show what is needed is the greatest feeling and priority in our heart and life, and it has been to gather at this place on this Sunday afternoon. As much as we have involved ourselves in a series of studies in the Sunday afternoon lessons having to do with the book of 1 Corinthians, we come tonight to close the book of 1 Corinthians. We do so with a lesson entitled, The Resurrection of the Dead, and also as a secondary part of that as well, Stand Fast. As we give some thought to the last two chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians this evening, might I invite you to give some thought with me very briefly to some introductory comments. We have, during the course of this studies, found a multi multifaceted set of ideas as it regards that 1 Corinthian epistle and as it regards the church in Corinth. So many issues, problems, and troubles that had reared itself in that congregation and we saw that in many ways they had dealt with it improperly. They were facing it in a way that was wrong. Paul, as he urged them to appreciate those mistakes, of course urged them that they would repent as necessary and approach those problems correctly. There is, of course, a solution. When it comes to any consideration relative to religion, there is a textbook. It's the one you hold in your lap and the one that I have as well. It is the textbook that provides all the answers to all the pertinent questions that you and I may ever face as it relates to the church. And certainly the Corinthian congregation needed a double dose, a double helping, if you please, of the nature of the great power of the Word of God. And today we still are in such dire need of a thorough appreciation of it. It is for those reasons. You can see again some of those problems and as we have seen the way they dealt with them, it brings us to the last two chapters. Chapters 15 and 16 of 1 Corinthians, as we close this epistle tonight, we shall do so in a way that's at least a little bit happier. But on the one hand, we too shall find some issues in it that will command our attention for things that too needed some correction. The 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians is well known. It is quite often regarded as the resurrection chapter of the New Testament. In the same way that the 13th chapter was the love chapter of the New Testament and the one to which we turned last Sunday evening, tonight the resurrection chapter. 58 verses in this chapter and the vast majority of them directly consider, directly put before us and exhibit the needfulness and the essentiality of the resurrection. It is for that reason tonight I would invite you to think with me about it. Certainly in a half hour's time frame or less, we'll not be able to, dis to discuss all that the New Testament has to say about the resurrection. But we can at least highlight some of the truths of this chapter, put them in their proper context, draw from them some tremendous matters that can assist us in vitality and to strengthen our faith. You'll notice on this slide before you, you and I still live in an age in which there are many who directly call into question the resurrection. And by that I mean a future resurrection. 
There are some who, of course, strive to build their life upon what scientific evidence can prove, what a laboratory scientific in nature can set forth. And since they're quick to say, I've never seen a resurrection, I've seen no experiment detailing any such thing, that they thus are quick to say, I see no reason to believe in it. I see no reason to offer a proof that that's a basis upon which to found life. May we be quick to say there were some in Corinth 20 centuries ago that also were beginning to question the resurrection. They were beginning to feel as if such a thing, there was no reason to believe in it. And as such, there were those in Corinth not only questioning a future resurrection, but in fact, even calling into question Jesus' resurrection. Now you'll notice a grand difference in those two. One had already taken place by the time Paul wrote this epistle. One had already occurred, and in fact there was great testimony to that truth. But there still were those in Corinth who for reasons of ignorance or otherwise, who for reasons of falsehood or otherwise, were calling into question the resurrection of Christ. As you and I can readily see in just a few moments, to call into question that is to call into question the single greatest truth and the single greatest bedrock of the Christian religion. For those reasons, please turn with me then to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians and let's first notice the first four verses. There are some who have highlighted these first four verses of chapter 15 and have in fact set them out as a single synopsis, a single summary of the basic core truths of the Christian religion. Please note how Paul worded it. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And immediately Paul brought before the mind of these Corinthian individuals these truths. You may notice some of the thoughts on that slide as we briefly discussed them. He made note of the gospel in verse 1. And as you and I then ask, so what is the most basic, the most fundamental, the most elemental truths of the gospel? We know, as for instance, the lesson that we studied together this morning, that the implications and the applications of the gospel are many, impacting the way we live, the way we talk, the way we behave ourselves daily and momentarily. But at the most basic level, what are the inescapable truths which must be understood and appreciated for any of those applications to make any difference or any sense? Paul said, I preached to you the gospel. What did that consist of? That Jesus came. You'll notice furthermore that this life of perfection ended by the fact that He died according to the Scriptures. The Old Testament had prophesied, had foretold the fact He would die in passages like Psalm 22, passages like Psalm 16. But not only that, that He was buried. There have been throughout the ages some who have called into question the death of our Lord. Many claim He fainted on the cross. They claim He did not ultimately die, but rather He just went into a swoon. He went into a temporary coma, if you please. In essence, He became merely unconscious. But He was still alive, some will tell us. 
There have been books written by supposed scholars and otherwise who use that central fact to call into question the very nature of his death. They claim he didn't really die on the cross. But you'll notice by inspiration it says he was buried and you only bury that which is dead. You only bury that which obviously has had the life of it pass from it. But you'll notice the inspired apostle made note of one more thing. Verse number 4, And that he rose again the third day. The triumphant resurrection on that first day of the week. When those, of course, those women came on that Sunday morning, they had come with a specific purpose and intent to finish the work that they'd begun some two days before. And as they came, they discovered that the stone had been rolled away. And the angelic visitors so triumphantly said, You seek the one. He is not here. He is risen. Matthew 28, 6. Just as surely as then those angelic visitors made that observation and pointed out that truth, you notice on this particular page in your Bible, there are many witnesses. There are many in that first century era who could testify exactly and forthrightly in ways that are inescapably powerful from any vantage point that Jesus was resurrected. I realize again that so many look at the number of cemeteries around us, those bodies that have been lain there in days gone by, and those bodies are still there decaying under the characteristic of that which comes to be our lot once we pass away. And yet we're being asked to believe that this one, in fact, was resurrected. The Old Testament had made hints about the reality of it. In fact, you and I remember that there were some who directly experienced such a powerful reality. In 2 Kings, the fourth chapter, you may recall in the days of Elisha, there was the Shunammite son who in fact had passed away and by the great power of God through the prophet to back to life he came in what you and I would recognize as a resurrection. The word resurrection, you see, simply means to exhibit or to appreciate or to display life again. A coming back to life. We have before us the greatest single New Testament exposition, the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. As we continue to think about the implications of it, look at some of the next elements, if you would, on that slide. We mentioned a moment ago some of these testimonies. Verse number 5, And that he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve. So this resurrected one... This Jesus, who upon that first day of the week had come forth, resurrected, now he says, Peter saw him. The twelve saw him. And it's not that they were all hallucinating. It's not that they were all delusional. They saw him. Notice the next verse. After that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Paul thus to the Corinthians pointed out that many of those who about three decades earlier had witnessed this resurrected Lord, they are still alive. You can ask them. Confer with them. Ask them what they saw. Can we not appreciate that the resurrection had many who could verify the authenticity of it? They could corroborate that it occurred. Paul still isn't finished. In verse number 7, After that he was seen of James than of all the apostles. James also was privileged to appreciate and to witness that resurrected Lord. 
And in as much as Paul has made observation of these, he reaches verse 8 in which he makes reference to himself. And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. And immediately he brings to our attention that scene on the road to Damascus recorded in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, revisited again in chapters 22 and 26 of that same book, in which Paul recounts personally his conversation, his opportunity to appreciate the risen Lord. You and I then notice that there have been books written, at least in recent years, in which there are those who have looked at the veracity of this testimony, and they have concretely showed that even from the vantage point of jurisprudence or a court of law today, the resurrection happened. May you and I never allow someone to even plant a doubt in our mind that it ever occurred. The Lord was resurrected. Our youngsters, I freely confess, may on occasion encounter those in positions of authority, often, let's say, teachers or otherwise, professors or scholars, who may in fact call into question the resurrection of our Lord, as if it and all of Christianity that goes with it is just a large matter of brainwashing. It's true, it happened. The resurrection of our Lord is a reality. But as you and I will quickly see, the implications are staggering. Paul at this point begins to develop the following thought. May I ask you to notice some of the language he utilizes beginning in verse number 11. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believed. When Paul came on that second missionary journey to Corinth, he preached the truth of the resurrection and they received it then. But during those intervening months and even a very small number of years, there had been planted in the mind of these Corinthians a doubt to where they were no longer sure. Note the next verse. Now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? There were now, we see the point in Corinth, some that were affirming that there will be no resurrection of the dead. They thought that Christ's resurrection at best was something that He would experience and no one else. There were others who seemingly were calling even that into question. It is true that the implications now read very quickly through the following set of verses. Verse number 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. A whole host of direct conclusions. If there is no resurrection of the dead... All the things on that slide directly follow. You'll note how powerful they are. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then that means Jesus was not raised. If Jesus was not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. The apostles are false teachers. And there is furthermore no hope, because even those who have passed away are perished. What a series of dominoes so quickly fall if there is no resurrection. You'll notice then that Paul so powerfully affirmed 
that you and I, he told them, we saw this resurrection, we testified that it was real and that it really did happen. And now there are some who are troubling you that there is no resurrection. Verse number 19 says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we are of all men most miserable. A better translation really for the last word in verse 19 is the word pitiable. You'll notice what that says. If a person's faith in the Master, if a person's conviction and belief and faith in Jesus can go no further than the grave... That person is of all people to be pitied. His faith is so powerless. His faith is so fruitless that it cannot carry that individual with hope beyond the grave. I realize I stand tonight before an audience who do not, who do not have that problem. But rather our faith is grounded certainly and fully and thoroughly in the greatness of the resurrection of our Lord. And we know for sure that the following truths describe you and me as well. Paul's argument continues on to verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept? For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ set his coming. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. You might notice the language so very powerfully presented. Paul said, Christ is risen, and furthermore, not only is he risen, he is the firstfruits, of all others. That word first fruits brings to our mind immediately so often the teachings of the law of Moses of the Old Testament. For instance, in regard to the Pentecost feast or even later, that feast of ingathering. God's presentation was this. The children of Israel, as the first harvesting of the crops began, they were to offer a portion of that to God as the first fruits. God was to get the very first observation of blessing from that crop. In giving that first fruits to God, the promise then to God was the remainder of the harvest and all the blessing that comes with it shall be your benefit and your blessing. But the first fruits was God's guarantee of all the future blessings that were to come to them. Apply that to you and me. Jesus was the first fruits in regard to the resurrection. He was the first one resurrected never to die again. There were others that were resurrected to life, like Lazarus in John chapter 11. But Lazarus died again. The Lord was resurrected never to die again. And as surely as that was so, He became the first fruits of all of us, that you too and I shall die, shall rise never to die again, if we faithfully shall follow His way. Amazing, isn't it, that in the language before us, verse 22, as in Adam all die. In Adam we find the character of sin. In Adam we find disobedience. In Christ we find the promise and power of life. The final discussion of that point in verses 24 to 26 highlights the majesty presently ascribed to our Lord. You'll notice that it says He must reign. The premillennial heresy tells us He's not yet reigning telling us He's not going to reign until some thousand-year time frame coming at some point following the rapture and tribulation. Such nonsense. 
Paul on this occasion said he is reigning now and he must reign, that is in continuation, until the last enemy is destroyed and the last enemy we are told is death. You and I know death hasn't yet been vanquished. Each second roughly two people in this earth die. Two people a second. We know death still has its sway, doesn't it? But yet we know that Christ Jesus must continue His triumphant reign over that spiritual body, the church, until the last enemy is destroyed. You and I know that when the end of time shall come, what a tremendous occurrence it shall be. We know from 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 to 18 that He's going to return in a rather visible, characteristic and powerful fashion. He's going to return and the trump of God shall sound. Furthermore, we appreciate every eye shall see in Revelation 1 verses 5 and 6. And when He does, we appreciate, of course, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Might we notice that even in this passage before us, it then says something beautiful. It says in verse number 24, it's at that time He's going to hand the kingdom over to God. No wonder we must be members of the kingdom. To not be in the kingdom is not to be amongst those handed over to God who shall be enjoying heaven forevermore. The vitality of the kingdom highlighted perhaps in one of those statements I think Adam wrote for us in the bulletin article. We're baptized into the kingdom, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And it is the fact the Lord adds to that church daily those being saved, Acts 2, 47. Might we notice in light of all that, it brings us to the next section of this chapter before us. Having lifted up before their minds the prestige of the resurrection, calling them to again appreciate the reality of it, doesn't it help us see the following? Paul then asks some rather pertinent questions that still are asked by many today. Beginning in verse number 35 and continuing basically until the end of the chapter, Paul addresses a number of concerns and questions that they had relative to the resurrection. As you think about the nature of those questions and the observations that are there, it begins like this, verse 35. But some man will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Immediately, that perhaps transitions us to think about some questions maybe you have been asked or maybe we each have asked of ourselves. What shall transpire at the end of time? Does the Bible tell us? I'd be quick to say that many an individual has chosen to write books and to write articles and to offer speculation relative to the end of time. But in terms of human knowledge, we do not know. We don't know when it will be. The man himself doesn't know how it will develop. But the Word of God does tell us. If we then will allow God to identify and to reveal the order of events of that day, we'll not be shocked, we'll not be surprised, and we'll also not allow others to move us aside into falsehood. The whole idea of the resurrection has been a strong part, hasn't it, of that premillennial nonsense. That's one of the matters so often described and called into question in ways that are so distinct and so false as it relates to the Bible. Basically, as you'll notice near the top of that slide, the dead in Christ shall rise first. 
how beautiful it is to give thought to those Christians, those saints, those sanctified of God who have passed from this life. And yea, we may not know how many years may transpire before the second coming of Christ. We know those dead in Christ shall indeed rise first. When our blessed Savior appears in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 15, we know the dead in Christ shall be raised, resurrected to life, and they shall thus receive the grandeur and power and reward of that for which they labored and the greatest hope of their life. Just as surely as here Paul says in the language of verse number 23, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at His coming. It wouldn't be inappropriate even at this point to ask, if you and I don't belong to Christ, if we aren't His then when we pass from this life, we can't possibly be the beneficiaries of a passage like this one. We can't possibly look forward to the opportunity of rising to never die again and to enjoy the marvelous grandeur of heaven forevermore. Are you in the kingdom? Am I faithfully in it? If we aren't, may we take heed at once to that this very night. And may we make things right with our Lord this evening while the opportunity presents itself to us. What shall that resurrected body be like? Many again have offered consideration relative to that. So in that morning of resurrection, on that occasion when the dead in Christ shall have risen, what kind of body will they have? What kind of existence will it be? I frankly admit, it's a challenge to try to appreciate it with this physical, fleshly eye that we now have. But this chapter does tell us some, some of the following things. I've tried to list some of them for you up on that slide, but let me read a few of the verses in passing. Verse number 36. Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be. But bare grain, it may chance of wheat or of other grain, but God giveth it a body as it hath pleased Him, and to every seed His own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of, me, of men, and another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There also are celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Pausing at that point, this fleshly body in which you and I now tabernacle, it is a body, it is an existence that highlights so many of those things Paul just noted. It's beset with afflictions and diseases. It's beset with hardship and pain. It's beset with that which seems so inferior to what imperfection might be. It's sown in weakness. We all pass from this life if the Lord delays His coming. And furthermore, we notice it's sown in dishonor. It often engages in what it wishes it would not. It engages in what knows is not perfection. You'll also notice in comparison... In verse number 44, it's sown a natural body. It's planted in the bosom of earth. In that aspect of interment, 
in that aspect of burial, in that aspect of distributing the ashes as the case may be, we notice it's sown a natural body, but Paul is so quick to say it's raised. And it isn't raised in the same way it was sown. It may have been sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It may have been sown in dishonor, it's raised in honor. It may have been sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual one. That kind of existence that we shall have in that resurrected body is a very different matter to contemplate, isn't it? John says it like this in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, We shall be like Him. The kind of body the Lord had in His resurrected state, in similarity, that's the kind of body you and I shall have. How special, how powerful. And as you'll notice so quickly, verses 50 and following, it is a body described like this. Now I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. There is coming a time when our Savior is going to reappear in the clouds, and there will be an instantaneous change of those yet alive. That tells us there will be no advantage for those who, have, who still happen to be alive at that time. It's not as if they'll have time to go obey the gospel. It's not as if they'll have time to be baptized if they haven't attended to that need. In the twinkling of an eye, things will, will be changed. And in that twinkling, you'll notice verse number 53, this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. The change that will be taking place will be a change in which now there will be an incorruptible, indestructible body. I say indestructible for the following reason. That spiritual body that shall be inhabited by those who are, are the dead in Christ will be a body fit forever in heaven. Those, of course, who have died outside the Lord, they too shall be fit with the body. And it too will be a body that shall never deteriorate, never decay, never be destroyed. It will be fit to suffer the agonizing fires of hell forevermore. Immortality. What a frightful thought on the one hand, but what a joyous one on the other. That kind of body that you and I will have, the kind of body that we will be fitted with, it will be a body described like verse 54. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption... And when this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, but the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What beautiful and yet what sobering words. As you and I reflect on that resurrection and the way Paul described it, to put on immortality, to put on incorruption, to in fact appreciate that the victory that's ours is only because of Jesus Christ our Lord. I haven't won it by myself and neither have you, but it's by our obedience to the Master, by our givenness to the truths that He has set forth and our faith in the promises He has given us 
that leads us to reflect on verses that are found in 2 Corinthians as well. In chapter 5, verse 1 of that book, Paul was able to make this rather interesting and rather vivid statement. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time were not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed in us. On another occasion, he was able to say, We walk by faith and not by sight. And yet on another occasion, For if the earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul spoke about this building that all of us should be looking forward to. A building eternal in the heavens, not fashioned with hands, for it's not made of flesh and blood. But it's a building fit in all incorruption and immortality for those, of course, to inhabit the marvelous climes forevermore. The resurrection is real. Paul preached it in all of its fullness. In Acts 24, 15, he preached the resurrection of the dead. And there were many in that day who questioned it, but that didn't stop the inspired apostle. As I mentioned earlier, our Savior demonstrated the power in the raising of Lazarus, raising Jairus' daughter, raising the widow of Nain's son in Luke chapter 7, highlighting in each instance he had the power over death. We notice in Romans 1 verse 4, the resurrection of Christ was the final proof that He was the Messiah. And God proved Him forevermore to be the Son of God by virtue of the resurrection. Today, as you and I look forward to that event, we don't know how many years that's going to be. We don't know when it shall be. It might be tonight. It might be tomorrow. It may be a hundred million years from now. We can rest assured it shall occur. And when it does, doesn't it remind us about that powerful promise that our Savior stated on the occasion of Lazarus' raising. It was a conversation He had with Martha, wasn't it? Recall she and Mary were greatly upset by the passing of their brother Lazarus. When Jesus finally came some four days later, Lazarus had already been buried, the body had already been positioned. There were even those who said, By now he stinketh. In that conversation with her, Martha said, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Jesus in quick reply said, Martha, Martha, thy brother shall rise again at the resurrection of the last day. You'll notice that Jesus finished that though by saying it like this. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live again. What a promise. May you and I live in confidence of that truth, understanding that all these events of 1 Corinthians 15 point to us that those loved ones that you and I have known, if they've died in the Lord, they have too are in position to realize the dead in Christ will rise first. And what a glorious and triumphant reunion and resurrection that's going to be. It is with that in mind that the final stanza of this epistle remains the 16th and final chapter of 1 Corinthians. That chapter has many thoughts in it that you and I can necessarily consider in some brevity, and that we shall do. In fact, I would highlight to you the chapter begins by redirecting our attention to practical applications of what we just studied. So what does the resurrection mean? How joyous it is we can assemble with our brothers and sisters in Christ and proclaim again until the Lord come His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And how joyous it is to appreciate we can sing songs about the beauty and the glory of heaven and the challenge that is ours to live wisely given the nature of that eternity.
The first three verses of this 16th chapter then describe the practicality of the contribution and the collection. How that on the first day of the week we lay by in store as God has prospered us. That's an obligation given to each of us individually. Not as if we can give others that luxury of doing it for us. Each one of us lay by in store as God hath prospered him. Did you note the personal pronouns the inspired apostle used? You'll notice there ought to be no gatherings when I come. And as, as much as that contribution is taken, we learn in so many other verses about this good stewardship of those funds used to carry out the work of our Lord. Paul quickly made note of some problems and difficulties that he faced from opposition. Verse number 9, I would invite you to note the language for it is so very telling. For a great door and effectual is opened unto me. That sounds so positive and so promising, doesn't it? Paul said, a great door has been opened for me. A door to evangelize, a door to preach and reach the lost souls of those who so desperately need it. But the last part of the verse says, and there are many adversaries. Along with the open doors came some adversaries. May I submit to you, Satan, it seems, will always ensure that's the way it works. Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 Paul seemingly relished the opportunity to appreciate both open doors and adversaries at the same time. It is with that in mind we notice then verse number 13. It's the lesson text Jonathan read in our hearing just a few moments ago. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. If we didn't know any better, I believe we would think that sounds like marching orders, wouldn't we? Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Those kind of statements, in fact, are marching orders for Christianity, aren't they? All of us should hear and hear again the orders, the commands, the wise wisdom expounded in that single and rather short passage. How watchful ought you and I to be? We're told in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that we walk in the midst of, in essence, a great armament in which there are fiery darts whizzing their way by us every day. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers, against darkness in great and high places. But we're admonished to put on the whole armor of God and having done all to stand. Jesus admonished us to watch, didn't He? In fact, in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, shortly before His own crucifixion, you may recall that four of the apostles came and asked Him privately, When shall these things be? What shall be the sign of Thy coming and of the end of the age? The Lord was asked about the end of time. He was asked about the nature of these events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem. He proceeded one by one to answer those questions. And as He answered the ones detailing the end of time, the critical message was, Watch. Matthew twenty-five thirteen. You and I thus each day must be alert, sober-minded, sound in judgment, walking circumspectly, and ever watchful. Notice what comes next. Stand fast in the faith. There will always be those who will try as they might 
to lessen, to question, to put doubts in our mind, to bring us to apostasy, to cause us to lose our soul. That's one of James Watkins' most memorable statements, isn't it, in his preaching ministry. In regard to some activity, he said, you can do that if you like, but you'll lose your soul. Oh, how we must stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men is the third statement. That seemingly has a very interesting thought. It has to do with the thought of maturity, to grow up in the faith, to grow strong in that which one ought to know and do. Quit you like men. May I suggest to you that the Bible so often encourages us to be individuals, not childish in our ways, spiritually that is, but to be strong and of great maturity. In Ephesians 4 verse 12, he said that we be no more tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 9 states, We ought not to be blown about by those false teachings that may surround us, but rather to be strong, to stand steadfast in the faith and in the truth. Finally, verse 13, be strong. So much power in that word strength, isn't there? Paul said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3.14. He could say one chapter later, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. The person who is a Christian, though the world may think he is weak, though the person may call him a sissy, and though the world may reflect upon him in very derogatory ways, that man, that woman is a bulwark of strength. May you and I take to heart this 13th verse of chapter 16. And with that, the chapter races to its conclusion. Paul offers salutations to a number of individuals there in the Corinthian congregation. He offers greetings from those who work with him. And it is with that that it allows us to make some of these final observations. May I invite you to notice verses 22, 23, and 24, the last three verses of the book. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. These languages and these statements and these words that Paul shared with the church had so often been direct, so often been very powerful, and so often called for their reaction and response. He closes the book by saying, If anyone doesn't love the Lord, let him be anathema. That word means accursed. That very last word in that verse is a word that petitions and beseeches the Lord to, in fact, come In fact, some translations render that last word, Come, Lord. You and I notice that we appreciate, too, the Revelation closes that same way. Verse number 17 of Revelation 22 offers that great invitation, Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. And then, three verses later, we appreciate this interesting and closing thought to the Bible. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. May you and I live in wisdom so that whether we happen to be alive or whether we've already passed from the scenes of this flesh, may we be excited about the thought of the Lord's coming. This study of the resurrection this evening and that admonition from chapter 16 verse 13 allows us these summary concluding thoughts not only to tonight's lesson but 
to the book of 1 Corinthians. We have seen the powerful discussion of the resurrection and the way in which it should impact us with a hope and a confidence and an assurance that the world doesn't understand and that they simply do not appreciate because you and I have our faith on a bedrock foundation that does not sway with the time, does not sway with human opinion or speculation, but is founded on truly that which is eternal. That's the resurrection. It is with that in mind, you and I must be strong. Quit us like men. Stand fast in the faith. Is that descriptive of you and of me tonight? Is that 13th verse of chapter 16, is that merely something we read but haven't applied to our own lives? If that be the case, why not make some changes tonight? Why is it not true that we could say of you, watch you, quit you like men, stand fast in the faith, and be strong? Jesus wants that to be applied to you. If tonight we could be of help to you, maybe you've never become a Christian. Maybe to this point in life you, in fact, have heard lessons, you've even read parts of the Word of God, and to this point you have not responded. There is an audience of people excited to rejoice with you, celebrate with you because your eternity is going to change tonight if you'll obey the gospel. The gospel invitation demands that you believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of the sins that you've committed. Confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. And if we could assist you in that way tonight, why not tonight? If you have become a Christian at some past time, you have known what it meant to stand fast in the faith. You knew for a while what was involved in being strong. But over the course of time, gradually things have changed. You know that now you are a mere shell of what you once were. Why not come back to your first love? The Lord will begin at once to reinstate within you the kind of life you need to have. If we could be of assistance by praying for dedication, praying for strength, praying for forgiveness from sins known publicly, why not tonight? There will never be a better time than this. Brother Adam's going to lead us in a song, and if we could help you, why don't you come while together we stand and sing?